Hello, everybody. Uh, super excited to be here this week. Crystal, it's a pleasure to be here with you yet again. Thank you, sir. Um, we're going to be talking to Glenn Greenwald, and I am really, really excited for this. He's such an interesting character to me. He, um, he has quite a personal story. I mean, he was arguably involved in, like, one of the biggest stories of the generation. I would agree with that. Yeah, the NSA story, Edward Snowden. I mean, that 100%. was everything. Imagine, like, casually exposing the world's most powerful government and showing that, hey, they're spying on everybody, they're collecting all your metadata, it's illegal, it's unconstitutional, and I'm going to be the guy that's like, here it is. Yeah. You become public enemy number one. And they're lying to you and all of that. That's right. So... Really interested in talking to him about that, among other things. Um, the big news as of the recording of this, and it's the thing that I can't stop thinking about, if I'm being honest, is that uh, Rush Limbaugh just passed away. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I babbled on my channel about this in a quick little video, but I, every time a, a very famous person and or a very political person passes away, I do struggle with this question a little bit of, like, What's appropriate? What's acceptable? What's the moral thing to do? What's the ethical thing to do? Because if it's a prominent lefty who dies, you do see a lot of people on the right that are like celebrating it and they're happy about it. Mm -hmm. But now, vice versa, you have Rush Limbaugh who passes away. And I don't know about you, but my Twitter feed was full of some people who were flat out jovial about it and just mm -hmm. happy, you know? Yeah. Um, my take is a little, I'll give you my take, then I want to hear what you think. My take is a little bit messy. You know, I don't have like a clean, hard and fast rule that I use for it, but like my general view is if somebody commits like incredibly heinous crimes, if somebody's like a serial killer or a rapist or a war criminal or a torture or whatever, if something happens to those people, I kind of get the instinct where some people are like, man, fuck them. You yeah. know, like they're fine with it, right? Right. I mean, the extreme example would be like Hitler. You know? Right, exactly. Like, is anybody really going to begrudge you if you're like, I'm happy Hitler Glad died? That guy's How gone. dare you say that, sir? <laughs> like, it's silly, right? But, but. It does get a little more complicated in the case of Rush Limbaugh because he's not the war criminal or the torturer. He's the cheerleader for the war criminals <laughs> and the torturer. Seriously. Right. The so enabler, it, yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a level removed where he's not the guy who committed the crimes. He's just the guy with the odious opinions on every single fucking issue. Yeah. Right? So, and here's where I landed. I'll, I'm curious to see where you landed on this. But my general feeling... It's just total indifference that he passed away. I'm not happy about it. Mm. I'm really not happy when almost anybody dies, save maybe the Hitler example or Osama bin Laden or whatever, right? right? But I'm just indifferent. And so, but the most important thing is we need to be able to honestly discuss his views, his record. Like we need to be able to tell the truth about all that and how terrible he was. Yeah. But I don't celebrate it. I just feel indifferent. And I'm just like, oh, okay, he died. This one is particularly hard for me to be sort of objective about because he said really horrendous things about me. He said, like, relatively recent, it was like a year ago, he said that I had posed nude when I was 14 or 15, which is, like, completely invented. I guess he was trying to refer to this stupid, extraordinarily tame scandal of, like, photos that came out during my congressional campaign in which I was 
of age, fully clothed, and with my husband at the time. And barely even sexual at all. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I mean, he's just like a total piece of shit. On, I guess I'm revealing by my saying that, that, you know, I feel okay speaking ill of the dead. <laughs> but um, he is one that is a little bit complicated for me to be really objective about. And um, I, I do feel like we kind of had this conversation too, you and I, when uh, David Koch past right because it was the same thing of like okay yeah he's not the war criminal he's not the torturer himself but the money and the apparatus that they set up has been incredibly destructive to Mm -hmm. american society Mm -hmm. i mean the mass impact that the cokes have had in particular i mean they're the ones that really fomented this whole like fake pushed back against climate change and funded the, you know, anti-science around causing climate denialism. They really were um, were front and, for, front and center behind that whole movement. So even though you're not the person, like, pulling the trigger or they are part of, uh, through their industries, changing the climate, but you're having massive, massive malign impact on the country and the planet. And I see Rush in a very similar light. I was actually part of, do you remember there was a controversy? He said some horrendous things about Sandra Fluck Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. during the ACA debate and she was advocating for um free access to birth control yeah and he basically he was like you're but you're a whore yeah, yeah. basically accused her of being see a the prostitute she's like it. a young yeah. woman in college mm-hmm. i mean it was really horrific yeah, i remember and there was a huge backlash and i was part of the effort to get his advertisers to drop from his show and it was significant ultimately obviously it didn't work he stayed on air until he died although many of his advertisers fled his program Most at the time them. and it actually did cause some some problems for him totally at the time did. Yeah. but um his version of talk radio and the way that he created this personal relationship with millions of conservatives and became massively influential and ended up being this extraordinarily, again, malign influence in the country. That is his legacy. And so there's no way to talk about him and who he was and what he did without just talking about that. Um, Probably, you know, me saying as a piece of shit, I probably shouldn't have done that. That's like goes into character. No, that's fine. But I think that being really clear about not even attempting to say like, you know, this he was talent or he was this or trying to sugarcoat it at all but just being super clear about what an evil and destructive force he ultimately was i think that's the only thing you can do okay but the question is is it good to celebrate it that's the question i don't object to anything you said there i don't see any i just don't see any utility in celebrating it you know but if somebody celebrates it do you look at that and you go cool or do you look at it and go like, eh? I look at it more like, eh. I even, mean, I, even though he's as terrible as you just described. Yeah, I don't like. I don't think I would tell someone, oh, you can't do that. Yeah, I wouldn't How say it either. You, but right? my thought when I see the people celebrating it is sort of like. I just again, I, I don't see the utility in it. I don't so, think it's useful, and I don't think it helps you if you want to set the narrative about 
who this person was. Just tell the facts. And their influence on American politics. You don't do yourself any favors in making that argument by celebrating the death. Yeah, just you sort of give undercut, the facts. You yeah. sort of undercut yourself when you go to that length versus just, yeah, laying out the facts. Yeah, just lay out the facts. Here's how he shaped media. Here's how he was this extraordinarily destructive, corrosive, corrosive impact and, like, you know, infected the brains of boomers across the country. Here's what he actually did is probably more effective in terms of laying out the terms of how we discuss him and his life moving forward and try to avoid, you know, the next, like, horrible, corrosive Rush Limbaugh type having a similar impact than actively celebrating. I just don't think it accomplishes anything. Right. So I'm going to actually do exactly that. I'm going to lay out some of his greatest hits here in just a second. And then I'll get to I'll get to the point which ultimately leads me to not celebrate it Mm. and be more indifferent. I'm not going to feel bad for him, you know, and I'm right. not, and I'm not going to give the bullshit nonsense where you pretend like he was okay. Of course not, um, but I will be indifferent. So some of his greatest hits, he thought that hurricane warnings are a liberal hoax. What? <laughs> this is a, no. He made that point a number of times. Whenever there was like a, a warning for Florida because he lived in Florida, I he'd be that. like, "I'm not going anywhere, bro," because I think this is a hoax. Was that a joke? He's serious about that? No, he was serious. Yes, he doesn't believe like the forecasting models. That's the thing models. he always falls back on when he takes heat. Is he's like, "I'm a comedian." Total nonsense. Total bullshit. Yeah. Uh, he also thought climate change was fake. He and this like he's worse than people even realize, and dumber than people even realize. He mocked people. Who believe in evolution he was a creationist wow he said of the big bang theory i remember because i covered this on my show this is going back years now but he said how do scientists know it's real they never saw it happen <laughs> he said that this guy was a world-class idiot he thought covid was a hoax he talked about that a number of times oh god um he compared obama to hitler and stalin he said that george zimmerman was the victim it wasn't trayvon martin oh. he compared hungry kids to animals oh, he, i remember that one he was for the iraq war he was for torture he was for every single tax cut for the rich he was for wall street deregulation he apparently celebrated aids deaths on his show this is something i didn't even know until today reading about it afterwards he said quote eric garner wasn't put in a chokehold even though he was murdered by a chokehold. Right. Um, he defended Saudi Arabia after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Wow. So, like, anyway, to your point, and I think it's correct. He went that extra mile to be awful. Wasn't good enough to be, like, in the normal mainstream of awful. He had to go the distance. That's right. So, but to your point, all we need to do is bring that up, and mm-hmm. then people will respond accordingly. When you celebrate it, it's almost like it's just overreaching. Like, it's overkill. You know what I mean? Like, just tell everybody what he was like and leave it at that. But because to me, and I'll, I'll end on this note for this point, um, I honestly think about it like this. Me and you are walking down the street. We see a car crash. Somebody's laying on the ground bleeding out. Right. They're laying on the ground bleeding out. You see very clearly they have a, a Nazi tattoo. They have a swastika. Do you call 911? They're bleeding out, dying on the ground. Do you call? Yeah. So do I. Right. That's a shitty person, objectively. Mm-hmm. It's a bad person. They still deserve to get health care because that's part of being a civilized human in a civilized society. You say, I don't care that you have, like, shitty opinions or whatever. And in this instance, even if the person on the ground was a murderer, yeah. you call to get them the health care. So I, I think of this in a similar way that, like, I do believe that human life has inherent value, even even if you're the worst person in the world. Yeah. So... I grant, what I do is I grant everybody at least that I won't celebrate it when they die. Like, Rush will get my indifference. I don't give a fuck. Like, 
he died. It is what it is. But I'm not going to celebrate it because I do think that we're getting a little too close to that line of like the person's laying on the ground bleeding out and you're like, I don't want to call because I think they're bad, a bad person. Yeah. You know what I mean? I've actually been faced with a similar, really? not quite as extreme as, yeah, I was just thinking about this. Um, I was in um, at an event in Kentucky and it was a really hot day outside and there was an um, relatively elderly couple and one of them um, had passed down from heat exhaustion and um the other one had very clearly like confederate flag ring and other shockingly similar yeah yeah and um i mean i of course like no normal human being would think twice Mm -hmm. about trying to help this couple in a dire situation but i also did see this a lot and still see it a lot um but especially when i did live in kentucky and i would post things about what was going on in politics there. This was back before, now there's a Democratic governor, Andy Bashir at the time. Um, Matt Bevan, a Republican, was in charge and he was doing all sorts of horrendous things, stripping labor rights and um, trying to take you know healthcare away and just tacking teachers' pensions, like all these horrific things. And when I would post about it on social media, inevitably I would get a torrent of like, fuck them. They should have voted a different way. Like they get what they deserve basically. And I think that view of politics and that view of our society is maybe one of the most damaging um, elements of our current politics, because it's not just liberals who have that view of like, they're evil, like they voted for Trump or they're like QAnon people or whatever. So they're evil and we want nothing to do with them and we hope they die basically is the bottom line. But like the right has their own version of that of, and we've talked here before too about, um, a majority of Americans think that the biggest threat to them is their fellow citizen. Mm -hmm. So if you're a believer in universal programs like Medicare for all, or like a living wage or like, you know, the right to, to form a union. If you're a believer in these universal rights, it becomes really hard to secure them if you have a mentality of I'm going to pick and choose who I think is worthy, right? Who I yeah. think is like worth caring about as a human being. And so Limbaugh is kind of an, an extreme example. Mm-hmm. He's very unsympathetic and also extraordinarily wealthy. So mm-hmm. he doesn't need any of these things, right? But I think your point that that mentality starts to of, of not just calling out the and, and just laying out the facts around what a horrendous person mm-hmm. this was, but going that extra step, extra step of celebrating their death that can bleed over into a view of society that ultimately is very damaging to, you know, the ability to get to secure those universal rights, because who's going to want Medicare for all? If you're like, yeah, but half the country's half the country's awful and evil, That's and it. they don't deserve it. So we're just going to keep it in California, or we're just going to keep it in New York, or among this set that we think is deserving. They use that exact argument to fight back against universal programs. They say, oh, if you do universal, you're helping the wealthy. Mm. I don't want to help the wealthy. Yeah. Why do you want to help the wealthy? Biden's they doing don't that with college it. debt right now. Yes, exactly. And that's a Weasley bullshit argument. Mm-hmm. And it's a similar argument to what you just said of like, you know, people could say, oh, you want Medicare for all? Or, There's a lot of people who are racist in this country. Why do you want to give them health care? Mm-hmm. Are you racist? Like, it's just, it's just so dumb. So I think what it really gets to the core of, and this actually 
is right up Glenn Greenwald's alley, is like you have to think about these things in a principled way. You know what I mean? And and he's the master of that. So I think without further ado, we have Glenn Greenwald. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, author, attorney. He's a co-founder of The Intercept, and he's now writing at Substack, which I recommend everybody check out. So here we go. Here's Glenn. Um, Glenn, thank you so much for joining us. We love having you. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Uh, congratulations on what is not so much the new show anymore, but uh, the newest show. Um, I'm really excited. I'm a little divided because I feel a little bit like I'm cheating on Sagar. Um, <laughs> Sagar knows it's okay. But I told I think him. He knows that that's my real heart lies there. This is just purely business, so I think he'll understand. This is yeah. this is just a side fling. We yeah, get it. I'm not. We I'm not. It. I'm not as edgy because I'm not right wing. <laughs> So he's got the edgy points that I don't have. He gets more problematic points. Yeah, exactly. And I know that's important to you. I'll handle the advocacy of the white nationalism for the doctor's absence. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, because this is kind of right in your wheelhouse, is the New York Times published this hilariously revealing piece about the new social media app Clubhouse right now. And they des- they described it. Part of what their issue with it was is that on that app there are unfettered conversations and they put this out seriously like people should be concerned about that i just found it extraordinarily telling what do you think it says about sort of the direction of that newsroom and so many others right so i mean the tweet itself was slightly worse than the article the article was bad but not quite as bad as the tweet the mentality though that it reveals is one that's quite pervasive and the context for that you're Times article is important. One of the reporters who wrote the article about the unfettered conversations on Clubhouse is Taylor Lorenz, who the week earlier had been doing what she seems to spend a lot of her time doing, which is eavesdropping on people who are speaking on Clubhouse and waiting for them to say a naughty word that she can then go and report. And she was in a room with Mark Andreessen, a early pioneer of Silicon Valley. He founded Netscape, which was the big browser that allowed people to navigate the the internet early on and is now a big venture capitalist. Um, And he had blocked her from all the rooms that he was in because of this tendency that she has to just try and monitor what people are saying and not do reporting, but like tattletaling. And she got into a room by using a pseudonymous uh, name that wasn't blocked and went onto Twitter so excited to say that he was just in a room and used the R slur, meaning retard. And then she posted pictures of numerous people who were in the room and accused them of complicity for not objecting. And it turns out he didn't say that word. Someone else said that word and they said it not to use it as a slur, but to refer to the way in which the Redditors who challenge Wall Street were referring to themselves, which is the retard revolution. She was just using the term descriptively because that was the room was about that, to talk about that. So that's very much what journalism has become, this idea that the power centers on which you focus are not the CIA, the Pentagon, or Wall Street, or hedge funds. And you don't monitor people who are powerful to see if they're engaging in labor abuses or antitrust violations or engineering coups. You just are like a kind of adolescent hall monitor who just waits around for people to say a bad word and whether they're powerful or obscure, you just go and publish it and that's what they regard as reporting. And that's very much the mentality at the New York Times and other places like it, which is we can't have anybody communicating with one another on the internet without them 
specifically fact checking and monitoring it and filtering it for hate speech and other forms of censorship. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about that is we've seen we've already seen this play out in a way which shows that it's a farce. So when you go after like these extreme right wingers on these different platforms and you say, hey, they're doing hate speech or whatever justification they use, um, the very next target, and this actually already happened, were like some very prominent big Antifa accounts. And it happened on Reddit as well, where they took down Reddit the Donald, and then the very next one that was taken down was the Chapo Trap House one. So why is it that there's still some faction, some segment, nominally of the left, but really I think it's more you know elite liberals, that hang on to this idea that censorship is necessary and right and just and ethical when they see the logical end result is that you have anti-establishment factions on both the left and the right who are hurt as a result of it. Well, I think there's a buried premise in, in, in your question that I'm not sure you fully intended, but I don't agree with if you'd had, or even if you hadn't, which is that people who are establishment liberals somehow are more bothered by censorship of anti-establishment leftists than they are anti-establishment right-wingers. I don't think that's the case. Censorship is always a majoritarian tactic by definition. It's something that people who have an opinion held by the majority or that somehow in some other way becomes mainstream can employ against those who question or challenge or dissent from those pieties. And so the targets of censorship are always people who are dissidents by definition. And the uh, those wielding the power are people who are the ones who control establishment. So I think, you know, your question is exactly right in the sense that it is never going to be just the far right or the far left or right wing populist or left wing populist who are going to be targeted with censorship. It's going to be anybody who established who opposes the establishment and the prevailing ideology that controls Washington, which is neoliberalism, from from whatever direction, from any direction. Um, it really, they don't really care if you're on the right or the left. And it's not just censorship. There was just a really uh, important article on the Washington Post where the FBI had activated itself with all kinds of aggressive measures in anticipation of what they thought were gonna be these violent or disruptive protests on inauguration day after the January 6th Capitol riot. And they were monitoring everyone essentially to prevent that from happening and they really found nobody on the right none of the trump supporters none of the stop the steal people who planned anything in fact they were almost disappointed that at state capitals across the country a grand total of like nine people from every <laughs> all 50 capitals showed up to protest but what they did do was they went and arrested this left-wing antifa activist who was using his social media account in ways that the FBI, in their words, concluded showed that he was on the path of radicalization. He was one of those guys who went to Syria to fight against ISIS with um, that socialist or communist faction um, in uh, with the Syrian Kurds, um, who, you know, has been ever since a left-wing activist he went to seattle to be in in that autonomous zone and he was arrested arrested by the fbi shortly after inauguration day and ordered held without bail by a judge on the grounds that his social media postings demonstrate that he's a real domestic terror threat mm. so 
I don't think that it should matter, this argument, oh, you should oppose censorship because it'll end up engulfing the left as well. You should oppose it on principle, even if it only ends up, you know, persecuting your political adversaries. But you're absolutely right that for those who only care about self-interest and pragmatism, there is no possibility that it will be confined to any one faction or ideology. It will be used against anyone who meaningfully impedes establishment power. Yeah. And we saw this also recently with Nathan J. Robinson, who I've had my disagreements with, but who was let go as a Guardian columnist because of some very mild criticism of U.S. foreign policy vis-a-vis and foreign aid to Israel. This one tweet, sarcastic tweet, was used to discontinue his relationship with The Guardian, which is, you know, just absolutely outrageous. Glenn, do you think that this instinct towards censorship is new? Or do you think that this just taps into an existing strain? Because part of what I see going on is basically you have this moment with Trump getting elected that really sort of rocks people and they're terrified. What's going on in this country? I don't even understand this country anymore. This is so frightening. Um, There are these ideas that seem to be trickling in from the fringe that I thought we had excised from the public discourse. What do we do about it? And into the void comes, you know, power brokers at the New York Times and other places who for them, censorship is also very, you know, it's good for their business model. If they can control the discourse, if they can push, you know, certain television shows off the air or shut down certain spaces that they don't have control over, that ultimately helps to enhance and maintain their power. So do you think that this is sort of specific to this moment and the freak out over Trump? Or do you think it taps into a longer strain in American history? Yeah, I think both. Clearly, there's nothing new about censorship, right? That's why the founders, when they implemented the Constitution, enshrined freedom of speech precisely because there had been already in history for centuries the reliance on censorship power by autocrats, and they wanted to ensure that that couldn't happen in this newly formed republic. That's evident of the fact that they were concerned about it, aware of it, that it was prevalent, and you see it all throughout history. Obviously, whoever can control the discourse and the dissemination of information has secured for themselves an enormous amount of unchallengeable power. I do think, though, there are new components to it that make it more menacing. Hmm. Um, One, for sure, is the fact that Trump, in general, created all kinds of moral panic that have caused people to perceive that certain... Uh, weapons and instruments and approaches and policies that maybe five years ago, even for them, would have been unthinkable are now suddenly justified because he represents or has engendered such a unique threat that kind of like the people after 9-11 did turn to things like the Patriot Act and other you know, torture and putting people in prison in the middle of an ocean with no, I just went completely insane thinking that it was necessary because the threat was so unprecedented. I think there are people in the United States who convinced themselves they were facing another 9-11 or another Pearl Harbor, like a kind of Nazi invasion of Western Europe. So extreme measures that maybe five years ago wouldn't have been justified are now justified. But I think there's something more odious going on, which is even though Look, all societies, by definition, have mores and um, kind of rules of moral conduct that they 
implement. That's one of the things that makes a society cohesive is this set of rules that you may not have to follow by law, but you have to file by virtue of follow by virtue of societal more. And one of the punishments is ostracization. They you kind of get cast out of society and instinctively that's something we really want to avoid because we're social animals, you know, 15,000 years ago, if you got cast out of your tribe, you would probably die. Being part of a tribe and being ensconced in it as a member is a part of our survival mechanism. So we want to avoid that. But so it's always been the case in society has had things that you're not allowed to say, you're not allowed to do. And the punishment isn't prison, but a harm to your reputation or being an outcast. What's so different now is that the internet has become a uniquely centralized and powerful means of communication on which we rely, not which we use, but has become indispensable for any kind of work that you do or any civic participation that you want. And although liberals who justify online censorship like to describe Facebook and Google and the like as just private companies who they suddenly sound like Cato Institute libertarians, like private companies can do whatever they want. Um, the reality is they're monopolies, number one, which brings up a whole set of dangers about what they do that isn't true for just other private companies that have competition. But much more importantly, to talk about these corporations as separate from the state is such a mythology. Facebook executives and Google executives and all these people in Silicon Valley go in and out of government. They own government. They 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 fund the campaigns. They pay the lobbyists to come. So they're basically completely intertwined. And so, for example, like before Parler was removed from the internet by three different Silicon Valley monopolies, Amazon, Google, and Apple. The reason that happened is because powerful Democrats like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ro Khanna used their very influential platforms on social media to demand that Google, Apple, and Amazon act to take Parler out the internet, and then they did. So is that just like a private sector uh, decision when it's monopolies and when they're being influenced by powerful politicians. I don't think so. These like tech monopolies are so enmeshed in state power that it's basically a form of being disappeared in a way that's almost as effective, if not more so than if the state comes and arrests you for things that you say. So I think the potency of it, kind of the all comprehensive nature of it, that's what's new. Yeah. Um, I think the solution is to basically regulate them as public utilities. All these big social media outlets regulate them as public utilities and expand the First Amendment protections to include it so that it, it's basically like the new public square officially. Um, but anyway, moving away from this topic, I don't – I want to get your opinion. Can I, can I, can I, can I, can I yeah, sure. just interject really quickly there? I, I agree with that. That is a solution. The problem is, is that if you listen to the Democrats, what they're saying is – our problem with Silicon Valley is not that you censor too much and that you need to have follow the First Amendment. Our problem with you is that you don't censor enough. That's why they want to punish Silicon Valley, because they perceive that Silicon Valley is permitting too much speech that they, the Democratic Party, in charge of the levers of government regard as dangerous. That's the problem. Yeah, agreed. I, they they do not by any stretch of the imagination, agree with, you know, the solution I just put forth. I don't see almost anybody yeah. advocating for that position. Um, so, Glenn, Rush Limbaugh just passed away. And Crystal and I were talking about this before, but what do you think is appropriate in terms of, I don't want to use the word decorum, but in terms of, like, how to discuss somebody who recently passed away, do, are we supposed to value life 
inherently to the point where you can't talk ill of somebody who just passed away? Do you need like a time frame where you give it a rest or can you jump right into it and start bashing? Can you celebrate somebody's death? So I'm curious what your thoughts are on what's the reasonable approach. Yeah, I mean, I've actually written about this a couple of times, once when Christopher Hitchens died and then another time when Margaret Thatcher died. So obviously in our lives, if somebody passes away who we know personally, there's just kind of a general etiquette rule that says you don't talk ill of the person. Like you don't go to their funeral and say, yeah, you know what, they were kind of an asshole and a dick. Um, and like, you don't go to their wake and start like talking about how they stole from you and lied to you and like we're a philanderer, right? Cause it's just like impolite. Like you're just inflicting suffering and pain on like their loved ones who are grieving. So it's a sensible rule of etiquette that when someone dies in those situations that you know personally in like the private realm, you don't speak ill of them. I think that's a completely inapplicable rule when it comes to public figures. Because what if it, if it were just, if the rule were, the rule were for public figures who die, who are highly influential, polarizing and controversial, like Christopher Hitchens, Margaret Thatcher, Rush Limbaugh, anybody like that. If the rule were, you can't say anything about them positive or negative, you just have like a three day waiting period out of respect for their family or whatever. I would disagree with that rule, but I could at least live with it. You know, I would say, okay, I, I understand the impulse. The problem is it's completely permissible. In fact, obligatory to heap praise on those people, not personally at their wake and in their funeral, like while, you know, talking to their loved ones, but in public, in public discourse from people who didn't know them personally, but who now want to create this like false narrative about their lives and create this hagiography that bears no resemblance. And if you're going to allow very positive things to be said about polarizing people, you have to allow negative things to be said about them as well. The reason why we're talking about Rush Limbaugh's death, even though we don't know him personally, is because he was a significant influence on the body politic. And how he's discussed in the aftermath of his death plays a big role in how he's remembered. I remember when Ronald Reagan died. Um, I don't know how much you guys remember of that week, but it was like the most like over-the-top operatic melodrama. They followed that fucking coffin around like it was a mouse chasing cheese, like <laughs> from place to place to place to place. And it went on for like days. It went on for a fucking week. And this is like somebody who was extremely controversial. Ronald Reagan was like a far-right conservative. He like did dirty wars in Central America. He like was the one who introduced the idea of all these economic policies that benefited the rich. I mean, he was a very controversial figure throughout his entire adult life and his political life. And then suddenly this like whole hagiography got built around him that completely whitewashed who he was because you were only allowed to praise him but not criticize him. And it altered how history remembers him. You know, mm. like airports are named after him and institutions are, you know, and, and it, no one to this day is willing to say much now negative about Ronald Reagan and mainstream discourse. And so that is the thing that really made me aware of how dangerous it can be to allow history to be rewritten for public figures. So I don't think that private sector etiquette applies in any way to how we discuss public figures. I think it's perfectly not only permissible, but necessary to let your criticisms rip. So like immediately so that a false picture isn't created on the question of celebrating someone's death. I'm not going to tell other people that they shouldn't. I understand the reason that says if somebody is like odious enough and has damaged enough people, 
that it's sensible and rational and moral to celebrate the fact that they're no longer able to do that. I personally would not do that because I think human life is inherently valuable. I think celebrating its ex extinguishing, even when Osama bin Laden was killed and there were people dancing in the streets, um, Outside the White House, I read an article about how kind of coarsening and degrading that can be to be a human being who celebrates the end of other human life. Um, I just think it degrades not just the society, but yourself to do. So like celebrating someone's death, I personally, I, I don't do that. Um, but I think keeping criticism and scorn on Rush Limbaugh after he dies is perfectly appropriate. It's really interesting, the case that you make. And it's it actually is very persuasive because the image you leave people with actually does go on to matter. And Reagan's a perfect example of that because we've now had, you know, decades of a Republican Party worshiping Ronald Reagan with very little ability to push back on the narrative that created that whole impression. I mean, Barack Obama even said, I think that Ronald Reagan was one of his favorite presidents or someone that he modeled himself after. And I think there's a recognition among some powerful figures of how important it is to lay down that marker for history. And what I was thinking of when you were talking is um, at John Lewis's funeral, um, President Clinton, Bill Clinton, gave a eulogy. And one of the things that he made a point of saying and sort of laying down the historical narrative was that John Lewis was the good side of the civil rights movement. And he pushed aside some of the more radical elements like the Stokely Carmichael's. And he made that point explicitly as an attempt to sort of shape the history and the way that this individual would ultimately be remembered. So I think a lot of times people don't recognize they feel like in the moment you know, the guy just died, you feel bad about his family, or like, maybe I'll just keep my mouth shut. What's the point of really saying anything? But the case you're making here is that, no, it actually matters to make sure that the picture of this person, you don't have to go over the top, you don't have to celebrate their death, but that the picture of this person who was powerful and influential that remains is at least somewhat accurate to the way they lived their lives and the impact that they had. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, these are political people that's why we, we we that's why newspapers talk about them when they die and talked about them while they lived and politics is by definition a struggle for power for how power is expressed from by who wields it and so it's always going to be conflictual it's always going to be acrimonious that's how they live their lives and chose to live their lives and so i think it's incredibly disrespectful actually to the way that they lived to suddenly convert them and their lives into something that it never was this kind of like you know saint-like figure who nobody has a bad word to say anything about um you know i would feel really creepy if when i die um presuming that i able to perceive it, that the people I know who have spent the entire time that I was living hating me suddenly now pretend to have respected me and think that I'm a good person. I think that mm. when someone dies, and again, I'm drawing the private public distinction here. I think if I went to Rush Limbaugh's funeral, I would obviously just express condolences to his wife and wouldn't share all the things that I thought about Rush Limbaugh that were negative because there's no reason to do that. But in the public sphere, um, I think when political people die, you have to treat them as and their deaths as, as political, which means making sure that the discourse remains politicized and not, not artificial. Except me. I want everybody to be 
nothing but <laughs> loving when I die. Everybody tell him, say, well, say how wonderful already, I am. Everybody and... does love you. Everybody loves <laughs> you. Not one person you. Um, so I want to I rewind a little bit here. And I know this is a bit of an open-ended question. But I'm curious about your family and your childhood and how you originally got into politics. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so um, thankfully, I was not very politically influenced by my parents. Um, like my father and mother were pretty apolitical, though my father, to the extent that he had a politics, just kind of like, he was like an accountant. So he just thought like it was important to keep taxes low. So he like always voted Republican, but never like passionately or anything, but like very superficially. Um, and he also kind of like worshiped this like campy hyper masculinity of the Republican Party politics. Like, you love John Wayne and Oliver North and Ronald Reagan. Like, all the kind of, like, just, you know, symbols of the masculinity that he thought he lacked. So that was his politics. So I just ignored that, thankfully, and didn't influence me in any way. But my grandparents, his parents were these, um, like, very political kind of, like, they came out of the tradition of New York Jewish socialist. You know, they were mm. born in 1904, 1910. In 1910, so the defining event of their life was the Great Depression and mm. then FDR's New Deal. So they loved, they worshiped FDR, um, but they were, they were socialists, you know, like real socialists into the 70s and 80s. Um, and my grandfather, once he moved down to Florida to, to retire in South Florida, where I lived, um, ran for city council in the little you know, mid-sized town that he lived in. Um, and he used to take me to city council meetings. And it was like this sleepy town before he got on the council. They used to like talk about zoning laws and like parking spaces. And he just like injected it with like all this drama. He would just constantly accuse everybody of being corrupt and you know, like, <laughs> critical. And there was this really interesting dynamic. Like at the time there were like these wealthy Jewish retirees who had moved from New York to South Florida and they like were about 50% of the city. And then there was like this poor working class um, neighborhood where we lived um, that was starting to grow and it was multiracial and diverse and, and lower middle class. Um, and so most of the politics in the city was always dominated by that like power base of wealthy Jewish retirees who lived in these condominiums. And he just was always this kind of like maverick type and like saw himself as the voice of the working class and just like waged war on the Jewish retiree power center um, <laughs> in this town. And so he would like take me to meetings with him from like the time I was eight until I was like 14. Um, and then finally he retired because he was getting too old. And then when I was 17, he wasn't done with his vendettas. And so like got me to run for city council um, to continue the wars that he wasn't yet done fighting, like using me as his instrument to torture his enemies. Um, and we had to sue for the right to like, for me to run because I was only 17, but I was going to be 18 by the time of the election. And the court oh said, God. as long as you're 18 by the time you can run, because they tried to kick me off the ballot. They were scared I was going to win because he was super popular. Um, and I did almost win, but I didn't. Um, so that was like really my first introduction to politics. But like, so his politics per se, doesn't necessarily shape, you know, my outlook, but definitely the way that he like saw the role that he played in the world and like the people for whom he wanted to be a voice and how he wanted to use his platform and skills like that definitely continues to shape me in obvious ways. And do you think that you just sort of naturally had that similarly fearless, pugnacious like approach to politics or do you think it was from watching your grandfather? 
I think it was partially from that. I think also, you know, I've talked about this before. I really do think that, um, like, not to be too Freudian about it, but that, like, the ways in which we end up interacting with and navigating through societal sectors and institutions of authority very much are based on how our personalities form in childhood. And so, you know, I've talked about this before, like, I do think my formative experience in childhood was discovering that I was gay and that I was living in a society that had, before I even had a chance to, like, understand why, had decided that it was evil and sick and broken. This is like the late 70s going into the early 80s with Reagan and the moral majority and the AIDS epidemic being the only time, like, homosexuality was discussed. And I think, like, a lot of gay kids dealt with that trauma and it is a trauma to like think realize that the society has decided that something inside of you that you have to hide because it's so shameful is like terrible um you know some gay kids like create an alternative world which is why i think a lot of gay people thrive in like the creative arts and that's how you get like david bowie or alexander mcqueen or chaiskowski or whomever and then other gay kids are like, you know what, I'm going to prove to the society that I'm like just like they are, that I'm totally normal in every way except this one little thing, so they should love me. And those are the assimilationists, and that's how you get like Pete Buttigieg or Ellen. And then like you get like kids who internalize the judgment, you know, like, oh, wow, I really am sick and evil and dirty and broken. And those are like the gay kids who kill themselves or who have mental health pathologies and my response to it was to say like wait how is it that you got to be how what is your competence to have formulated this judgment about me and then impose it on me let me instead like put you under this judgmental microscope and question your own moral standing and like what is it about you that we ought to be looking at and perhaps condemning and I think that early experience of questioning the entitlement of authoritative pronouncements and the foundation of their right to make them was obviously something that, you know, helped me a lot in all the work I've done as an adult as well. So would you say, for me, I can say for sure that one of my intellectual heroes is Noam Chomsky. Would you say that you share that? And who else would be an intellectual hero for you? Yeah, I mean, for sure, you know, like, I, 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 like, read Chomsky and, like, saw Manufacturing Consent in a movie theater when I was in college or right around that time. Um, and I liked it, you know, but, like, I was more interested in studying philosophy, like, classic philosophy, much more interested in that than politics. So I didn't spend a lot of it, pay a lot of attention to Chomsky then. And it wasn't really only until I started writing about politics full time, like, in 2005, when I really started immersing myself in Chomsky because what I really needed to do was like abolish all the beliefs I had about everything because I had come to realize by reading the New York Times every day and like being a subscriber to the New Yorker and the Atlantic, it wasn't that I was having gaps in my knowledge. It was that I had been propagandized and deceived into believing huge numbers of things that were completely false because I just didn't have the time or the energy to critically evaluate them. So once I did that, I started, you know, kind of destroyed the whole edifice and rebuilt it from scratch. Chomsky was absolutely a crucial um, factor in 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 how I learned to do that um, and continues to this day to be that. Um, you know, I also was very influenced when I was a kid. Like, I was really attracted to journalistic dramas, like All the President's Men, like Daniel Ellsberg. I was incredibly obsessed with the Watergate scandal with the Pentagon Papers um, story, obviously, a few years after they happened. And that definitely shaped how I thought too. Um, you know, I think like studying philosophy, I have a degree in philosophy, like 
helped me think about always how to find first principles in arguments. Like that's still to this day, just instinctively how I try and evaluate things. Like what is the principle being defended, even if it's just implicit? Um, you know what I- Who's like, your favorite, Glenn? Too, who's your favorite philosopher? Sorry to interrupt, but who's your favorite philosopher? Um, I really love like, the I love the Greeks, like Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. Um, I think Immanuel Kant was, probably like the most impressive intellectually rigorous philosopher. Mm -hmm. um, and then I got very enmeshed in like French existentialism and, and in Nietzsche. Um, so that was kind of my trajectory. I would say like if I had to pick one, it would be Nietzsche. I think he was the most brilliant. Um, and I've talked before about like Martina Navratilova being like a childhood hero, which is like a really unlikely and weird one, but she was like this figure of extreme dissidence. Now she's this like incredibly dreary resistance drone, but I'm just going to totally ignore that that's the case. But when I was young, she was actually super interesting and like critically minded. Um, and I was going to do a film about her actually before our relationship soured over her shitty politics. Um, but yeah, she was somebody who like really spawned my interest in how a person can kind of transcend the categories into which they're born. Yeah. Well, one of the things, first of all, that um, commitment to first principles and finding like the core of, OK, what is this thing really about? That definitely to me is a hallmark of your writing mm. and of your just reasoning when you're on Rising or wherever um, you're speaking. But another thing that that Kyle and I actually talk about when you're not around behind your back <laughs> is <laughs> how you're always the champion of like the outsider. Like your instinct seems to be when someone is under siege and everybody in the mainstream is like, fuck this person. They're evil. They're bad. They're wrong. You're the one who actually who's like willing to take their side if, if it's reasonable. Right. You're not going to go and defend anybody. But you're the person who's willing to take their side, even when it's wildly unpopular. Yeah, when you're the only when one. you're the only one. I mean, you're like, you talked about how you were willing to write the article like the day after Osama bin Laden is killed about like, why are you dancing in the streets about <laughs> Osama bin Laden being murdered, right? That's a very bold stance to take at that moment in American history. And it's one that a lot of people probably thought and were like, I'm just going to keep that one to myself. <laughs> um, where does that instinct to sort of defend the outsider or be the contrarian like, where do you think that comes from? And also, you seem to have a personality type that almost relishes the pile on. Like, when people just come, it doesn't seem to phase you at all. Is that just a persona, or do you actually sort of delight in that kind of a fight and debate? Yeah, you know, I mean, first of all, I do think it's important not to fall into reflexive contrarianism, right? Like, mm -hmm. I don't, as you said, there are limits, right? Like, I didn't go and defend Dylan Roof, right? right. Like, or people right. like that. Um, <laughs> right. You know, so, and 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 I, the reason I didn't wasn't because I was being strategic. It was because I don't think there's, like, an actual defense. So even though right. everybody's condemning them, I'm on board with the condemnation. But I think that, on, you know, with rare exception like the Dylan Roos or, you know, like Anders Breivik or people like that. Um, I think humanity is very complicated. Mm -hmm. I think it's very rare that there's great moral clarity about any person or anything, um, which doesn't mean you shouldn't feel passionate about things or believe strongly in the things that you believe, but I think there has to be a humility that's married to it based on the fact that as human beings, we're extremely subjective, tribal, um, 
we do judge everything through um, a subjective prism and above all else, we're fallible, right? Like the pieties and orthodoxies most deeply held in one generation become the source of shame of the next. I mean, that's just the history of human evolution and intellect and and thought. Um, and so to think that we're somehow outside of that and immune to it, I think requires a hubris that staggers me. Like this idea that, you know, um, I have a certain view that is so indisputably and eternally correct that nobody should be allowed even to dissent from it is one that just like offends my sensibility. Um, and I think that, you know, so often, as I said before, you know, we were talking about before, like because we are social animals, societal pressure and mob behavior um, and kind of the overwhelming consensus imposes a lot of pressure and a lot of coercion on us to join with it because it's always easier to join with it than it is to stand opposed to it. Um, there are way more rewards from being part of it. There's way less uh, risk and recrimination. And, you know, yeah, I mean, I do have the personality type that instinctively wants to find kind of the things that societal consensus might have been overlooking might actually, mm. that might actually be flawed in, in the certainty, probably in part, it's because I did feel like an outcast from being gay, um, early on. And, and I felt like I had been unfairly condemned and denounced by a corrupt societal structure. And so am skeptical of the kind of nobility and righteousness of those same dynamics to judge others. Um, but I also think that, you know, it comes from, you know, it's that it goes back to that question that I was talking about with my grandfather before. Like, I have confidence in my abilities. Um, I have, you know, faith in my integrity and like my ability to um, mount an argument and to like defend myself. So I feel like, you know, then the question becomes like, how am I going to use that? Am I going to use that to just bolster what is already kind of the most powerful force in any dynamic or any conflict just to kind of jump on board and ride it? Or am I going to use it to try and, you know, give voice to things that maybe don't have voice, any other way to get a platform? And my instinct just early on has always been, as you say, to kind of side with the unlicensed, like the unauthorized, the outcast, mm. the... And I think that's not necessarily... That doesn't necessarily mean that each time I do it, I'm in the right. But I think we need that someone fulfilling that role in society for some kind of balance. Glenn, can you tell me what issues you have changed your views on or evolved on from when you were younger? I mean, I think, you know, well, when I was younger, like say before I really began writing about politics, you know, I like really didn't pay a lot of close attention to standard political debates. Um, you know, I went to college in the late 1980s and then law school in the early 1990s. And so by the time I was out of law school, it was the year, it was the Clinton years where everything in politics seemed very low stakes. The Soviet Union had fallen. We were supposed to have um, this peace dividend. There was kind of like, you know, people were writing essays about the end of history. There was like this new world order of just like Western liberal democracies being very stable and kind of 
like spreading themselves and like to the extent there were conflicts politically they were so low grade they were like the monolith Lewinsky scandal and stuff and it just you know see and we were talking about Rush Limbaugh before it was like Rush Limbaugh ranting and raving and the advent of Fox News and it just wasn't very interesting to me it seemed kind of inconsequential just like back and forth between Bill Clinton and George Bush 41 and um <laughs> So I spent a lot more time thinking about like constitutional issues. I was a lawyer. I was defending my, uh, you know, defending constitutional quick cases. And so to the extent I had political views, they were very mainstream. Like they came, as I said before, from like, like I thought Tom Friedman was like a smart and oh. respectable foreign policy columnist. <laughs> Cause that's what everyone around me was saying. Um, and I thought like the basic truth was found in like Atlantic articles. Um, and that's like part of why when I began writing, I wrote with such kind of like a fury because I kind of felt so betrayed by these institutions that I had trusted, but were in fact inherently corrupted. So everything that I thought, you know, like in my kind of mid twenties, late twenties about the role the United States plays in the world, about what kind of country the United States is, about the role that the media plays, about the nature of our freedoms, all of that I realized in retrospect was just very misguided, you know, the byproduct of reflexive ingesting of propaganda rather than any kind of, of attempt to be thoughtful critically. Do you think that there's a benefit to writing about the United States from outside of the United States? Yeah, for sure. There's like this really beautiful um, excerpt from a documentary about Gore Vidal, who you know, was really a genuine dissident his whole life. Um, and he ended up moving to Italy for a large part of his life and talked about how, like looking at the United States from this distance gave a greater clarity to certain things. The way I always, um, it doesn't mean that your view is more accurate, right? Like, cause there is something that you miss out on by being immersed and walking on American streets. But the the, the kind of, analogy I always use is like, if you walk on a street in a big city, you're gonna see certain things that you can't see from an airplane flying over it, right? Like you see the details of buildings, you see the faces of, of human beings, you hear particular conversations that are inaccessible to you if you're flying in a helicopter or airplane over that city. But there are things that you see in terms of a perspective flying over it that you can't see if you're in the middle of it, right? You see like, how it's all laid out. You see um, like how things are connected. You see what surrounds it. So the perspective is just different. They're both accurate in their own ways. They're just incredibly different, the things that you end up detecting. So for one, I think absolutely the distance provides a kind of perspective that you can't get if you're too immersed in it. But I also do think there's the more obvious benefit that the fact that my friends and my network of connection, human connection that I see every day aren't you know, immersed in Washington, New York, Los Angeles, media and po political culture gives me a greater freedom to critique it without feeling like I'm gonna be losing friendships or other opportunities that, you know, you probably are at risk of losing if you're really that dependent upon it because you live in the midst of it. Yeah. And so then do you feel the difference between your reporting in Brazil versus your um, analysis of the U.S.? Like, do you feel that difference between like the street level view and the airplane level view? Or do you think you cover both relatively similarly? 
Yeah, well, it's interesting because I'm kind of like a foreigner in both places. It's really hilarious. Mm. You know, like I spent the last two years with Brazilians saying, like, go fuck yourself, go talk about the U.S., leave our country alone. And when I write about the United States, I hear from liberals every day saying, go fuck yourself, write about Brazil, leave our country alone. <laughs> so it's kind of like I'm, a, you know, like in both countries, but also neither. Um, so there, and there is an element of truth to it, right? Like I grew up in the U.S. I'm a citizen of the United States. I lived there until I was 37. But I haven't lived there for the last 16 years. I visited, you know, I visit many times a year when there's not a pandemic, but I don't live there and haven't since 2005. Um, but in Brazil, I have a very similar kind of sense of not fully being integrated because I, the first 35 years of my life or 37 years of my life was lived somewhere else. So I still feel like I look at it with a certain kind of eyes that say Brazilian reporters who were born in Brazil and lived in Brazil their whole life don't quite look at um, or can't quite see in the way that I can't th see things that they see. So I feel like I'm a little bit of an outsider in both. And I think that outsider ethos is really good for journalism. So would you say that the NSA or the Bolsonaro government is, I don't want to say this in such a crass way, but has a bigger target on your back? Is the Bolsonaro government the bigger threat, or is it the NSA probably spying on everything you've ever done? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, we obviously, I remember uh, it was Mother's Day 2019 when I was first contacted by the source in Brazil who turned over to me this massive archive of hacked conversations among Brazil's most powerful and popular political figures that revealed immense systemic corruption on their part. And I went to talk to David about it. And we talked about, you know, the risks of doing the reporting and the likely consequences. And I said, look, you know, we've already been through this once before. Like, we know how to do it and they don't. We're going to have this huge advantage. And he's like, that is so fucking naive and stupid for you to think. That's just how my husband talks to me with that kind of great love and affection. He said, <laughs> you know, remember, like, when we were doing the Snowden reporting, we were ensconced in Brazil. Like, the Brazilian government was incredibly supportive of what I was doing because part of what I was doing was revealing how the NSA was spying on key Brazilian institutions, mm. including its population, its president, its oil company, its you know mining industries. Um, so I had protection, I had a government that was protecting me. And so the governments that were angry with me, there were many of them, were still far enough away that I felt physically protected, even if I didn't feel protected from their surveillance and other forms of retaliation. Whereas in Brazil, when I was doing the reporting on this very new and authoritarian government, I was in the country where they exert their power. So the government that was extremely angry with me and the massive movement that had coalesced around it that was newly empowered because of the election that decided I was their number one enemy for at least six months, if not longer, you know, were not thousands of miles away separated by oceans, but like a couple of meters away, separated by corners. And the danger was much more acute. It was much more physical. It was much more proximate. And it was also just kind of less controlled, like say whatever you want about the United States and, you know, the UK and the kind of Anglo world. Um, they do kind of operate by a set of established rules as corrupt and barbaric as they often are, that give you a sense of predicted, that give it a sense of predictability about what they're likely to do or not. Whereas the Bolsonaro government had just ascended to power five months before we began the reporting with the explicit intention of rewriting all the rules, of not following the basic 
foundations of democratic norms. And so the unpredictability factor was also much, much higher. Can you just talk a little bit about what that's like to feel yourself in sort of like acute physical danger? Were there any things that you felt like were close calls? Does that, you know, just put sort of an ambient level of stress on you and your life? What is that like? Yeah, I mean, I do think in the case of this, I do think this is one instance where this doing having done the Snowden reporting did help because, you know, remember during the Snowden reporting, I had on my person at all times, one of the most valuable archives of top secret documents from the most secretive agency of the world's most powerful government. And it wasn't just the United States government that wanted to take that away from me, but an endless number of other governments and non-state actors who would have loved to have gotten their hands on that information and who therefore had an interest not only in getting it physically, but in knowing what we were talking about and what we were doing. And so one of the things we learned early on there was like, look, if you don't learn how to manage that stress and fear and paranoia, you're going to go completely insane. You're going to be like one of those people who end up in your spam file, you know, like writing every day about how like people are controlling you with microwave ovens. Yes. yes. If you're constantly like, oh my God, what the fuck is that car on our street doing? And what is this person who just like sat down next to me? If you start falling into that trap, you're going to go insane. And so one of the things we learned to do was like, okay, create all the reasonable precautions that we can against surveillance, against our physical, uh, uh, to protect our physical security, and then just forget about it. Like, you've, you have to accept that you've undertaken this risk and you can't focus on it. Because if you do, you're gonna be paralyzed with fear. Wow. So that really helped. But in this case, the problem was the risks were very physical. Like, Brazil's a, a, a country where, you know, you know, political violence is very real. Um, about a year and a couple of months earlier, one of our closest friends had been brutally assassinated. Um, Marielle Franco, when she was riding in her car, she was on the Rio City Council with my husband at the time, and she had mm. four bullets pumped into her skull oh. by right-wing factions who to this day have still not been caught, which was very traumatic for us and obviously weighed on our minds. And so, you know, we couldn't leave the house without armed security. We couldn't leave the house without armored vehicles. Our house got turned into like a military fortress. We were getting the kinds of death threats, not that like people on the internet love to like highlight where someone's like, oh, I'm, you better watch your back. But like, here's where your kids go to school. Here's a picture of your front door. You know, like the names of our kids. Here's what we're gonna do if you keep publishing. Like really sick and deranged stuff that we took very seriously. I'd appear in public events and like, there'd be just thousands of people, you know, and like oh. sometimes they would shoot fireworks at us. Um, and then it all culminated with my being indicted, remember, criminally yeah. in January of 2020, where I got charged with, I don't remember, I think it was like 104 felony counts that had like 326 years in prison had I been convicted. So, you know, it kind of goes back to what you asked me earlier. Like, I do think I have the personality type that craves those kinds of fights. I think I'm equipped and built to, to, to manage them. I think my husband is as well. Um, but in that case, it was so extreme. I just finished my book on it and I like having told the whole story, you know, when you're in the moment, you don't allow yourself the luxury to appreciate how kind of, you know, difficult it is to manage that you have to put on a brave face for everybody else. Um, but yeah, I have no trouble admitting that that was actually a very difficult period of, of, of work um, because the dangers were just so multifaceted and constant and very real. 
One of the things that uh, I think I learned the hard way co-founding Justice Democrats is that when you have an organization and you create it, unless you're really on top of every little aspect of it, then it's tough to make an organization stay true to its original mission. And it's very easy for an organization to get off track because it's just too big and there's too much of a bureaucracy and, you know, there's too many competing visions. So a, a similar kind of thing happened with The Intercept. Can you tell us what happened with The Intercept, why you ultimately left, and your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think it's a good point that you made that I actually didn't appreciate myself fully until a few years ago when I flew to New York in the middle of the reality winter debacle and had you know, just kind of like a very difficult conversation with Betsy Reed, who was the editor in chief, just about everything happening at The Intercept. And, you know, one of the things she said to me was like, look, it's common, not unusual for founders of an organization who decide either not to run it from the start or to give up control to end up dissatisfied with the direction that the people managing it take that organization in. Because ultimately you have to give the people who are managing it the some autonomy, right? they can't just be your puppets or your clones, right? Like no one capable or competent is gonna to agree to take a job if they have no ability to shape them, themselves. So I think that's a common conflict. I think in the case, you know, and I, and I think that's one of the things that happened with Justice Democrats as well, right? Was that like it was founded and 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 the, and shaped and driven with your name and, and Jenks, but you chose not to manage it and you brought in a CEO and a board of directors and they have their own ideas. And before long, it, it looks quite different than what you had thought you were creating. In the case of The Intercept, I think that it wasn't so much that, you know, because we did early on make the decision, Laura Poitras, Jeremy Scahill and I, that we didn't want to run it. Because I didn't want to be in like HR meetings and budget right. meetings and talking to fucking lawyers, right? I wanted mm -hmm. to do my journalism. Whereas Matt Taibbi made the opposite choice. He was, remember, gonna he came to First Look alongside us and was going to create his own uh, outlet. And he decided, no, I want to run this. And he did end up in months of hideously suppressive, repressive meetings with budget people. And, and so he quit because he, Matt you know, just doesn't want to be doing that. That's not who he is. So I think we made the right choice because otherwise we probably would have quit when Matt did, had we not. But it wasn't so much that, you know, it ended up just quickly going in a wrong direction because I think we were very careful about the people we hired being people who we trusted. Um, you know, Betsy Reed was somebody who in the middle of the Snowden reporting, when I thought the Guardian was dragging its feet, she was at the nation. I called her and she said, after reading the article I had sent her, oh, we'll publish this sight unseen, like without any changes. So I had faith in her. I felt like she shared our vision. I think what changed was the politics. The real problem started happening after the 2016 election. There was like this Slack discussion, um, which is like the, for people who don't know, the, the program that a lot of newsrooms use to have people remotely all communicate with one another. And people were horrified that Trump had won, obviously, but they were also angry about the role they claimed we had played in having Trump win. And people were saying, I think we need to immediately come out and apologize Whoa. for the role we played in helping Hillary lose because of the, and that was when I immediately knew something has gone really wrong here. That like, there are people here, a lot of them who think 
that the role that we're supposed to play is to help the Democratic Party win elections, and that and we're supposed the, to do reporting to, that's designed. Just to pause you on that, like, what was the case that they were making? What was the reporting that they thought crossed the line and ended up being too helpful to Trump? So we did very little reporting on the FBI criminal investigation into her server. We did some, but like not a lot. We did a lot of reporting though on the contents of the emails that were published by WikiLeaks from the DNC and the uh, and John Podesta's inbox. And you know, we adopted a policy really early on that we weren't going to report on like trivial things or gossipy things or only like substantive things, which I think we adhere to. But we did do a lot of reporting on that, and the people who were making this argument felt like we had lost perspective that what we were reporting on that Hillary did was so much less than what Trump did that we basically had been journalistically reckless in making it seem like Hillary was worse than she was compared to Trump, which is so ironic because when it came time for me to write about Hunter Biden, even before they saw the draft that I had written, that was the argument that they were invoking was, look, even if some of what Hunter Biden did is sleazy and even if it reflects somewhat on Joe compared to like what the Trump family and Trump has done, it's not even in the same universe and therefore you shouldn't report it. Um, and I just feel like during the whole Trump era, the Intercept never really found its footing. It just, they were petrified of doing anything other than saying how evil the orange Hitler was. And because the entire rest of the media was doing that, The Intercept became more than anything else just boring and pointless. Like nobody was reading The Intercept. Like if I showed you their traffic stats, it would shock you how few people were reading it because if all you wanted was Orange Hitler bad, you wouldn't go to The Intercept for that. You'd just go subscribe to The New York Times or turn on MSNBC or CNN or read Vox or The Washington Post. And so it completely lost where what it's role was supposed to be that was in any way unique or distinctive because they were too afraid of having the liberals who live around them in their communities or their friends think negatively about them. And so that desire to please prevailing liberal conventional thought drowned out with exceptions and all of that, but for the most part, what their journalistic role was. And that's why I just became so increasingly dissatisfied with it to the point that you know, I left when they wouldn't let me report on Hunter Biden with the acrimony that I, I did. You were one of very few people on the left, myself included, no big deal, <laughs> who pushed back against Russiagate and basically said from the beginning, this is total bullshit. Um, what made you so sure so early on, like me, that <laughs> it was total bullshit? Um, I don't know. So, so I do want to mention at the start that along with me, um, for those who don't know, Kyle, you are also one of the people expressing the skepticism. I think it's very important to note that. Let's talk more about that. For a little bit. <laughs> you were too, you were too humble to, to say it. Um, <laughs> so I thought it was important for me. To... No, no, I remember like the first time I became aware of this brewing narrative was the Clinton campaign had released this like kind of like, you know, one of those ads that's intended to be like dark and menacing. And it was like, what is going on between Trump and the Kremlin? It was like, you know, these grainy images of like Moscow and like what people think is the Kremlin, but is in fact uh, St. Basilica Cathedral. Um, and, you know, just like these grainy images of Putin and implying that the Trump 
campaign and Trump himself was somehow beholden to Moscow in a way that as somebody who has been very steeped in the history of the Cold War, which you have to be if you want to write about the security state and the CIA, which is out of where all that comes from, right? It was after the World War II when the national security state was created as a way of combating the Soviet Union. But also as somebody who has been a civil libertarian for so long, one of the worst episodes for civil liberties in the 20th century was the McCarthyite excesses, which was nothing more than accusing people of being secretly beholden to the Kremlin, of having sympathies for Moscow. And obviously the ideology at the time was different. It was communism, not kleptocracy or whatever you want to call the current iteration of Russia. But still the script was identical. It was like, what is what does Russia have over him? And why did he go to Moscow? And what is going on between... So just instinctively, I was repelled by what was this like obvious attempt to revitalize this crusty Cold War script that had been buried for a couple of decades. Just as you know, someone steeped in left-wing politics, it, it disgusted me. And so I was inherently skeptical of it and even repelled by it. But then the more I kept looking the less evidence I was seeing, which just months were going by where these accusations were being made throughout the campaign. And then even once he won, the DHS would like, the Department of Homeland Security would issue these like bulletins purporting to say that the Trump campaign collaborated with Russia or Russia interfered in the election. They would be like seven pages long, bereft of any evidence of any kind. And so just as a journalist, I felt like it was my obligation to say, where is the evidence for these very serious allegations that are being made? And while in the case of Russian involvement in the election, some evidence was finally presented for some of the claims being made, not like the maximalist claims that Putin ordered it, but some of the claims, no evidence to this very day has ever been presented that the Trump campaign collaborated with or conspired with the Russian to, for example, hack into John Podesta or the DNC's email box. The Mueller investigation closed, admitting it found no evidence to establish that it charged nobody with those crimes. And so for me, it was just in the beginning, the revulsion toward the Cold War script, but ultimately it was just my journalistic obligation to demand evidence, especially when claims are emanating from the CIA before believing them. And that evidence just never came. I mean, the Democrats loved this narrative, too, and no one loved it more than Hillary Clinton because it completely let her off the hook mm. for blowing what should have been an easily winnable election. I mean, it's incredible that sort of mainstream Democrats harbor no ill will towards the person most proximately responsible for bringing in Orange Hitler. But she just gets like a complete pass because ultimately it was Russia's fault. She was on her podcast with Nancy Pelosi. I'm sure you caught this, where after the January 6th riots at the Capitol, she was like, I want to know if Trump was on the phone with Putin while this was happening, (laughs) like still holding on to it. But it's, you know, I mean, it's hilariously absurd at this point, but there's also real cost for having enabled this narrative. And part of that cost that I think you've done a fantastic job, maybe better than anyone of pointing out is now you've had years of these national security state ghouls being lionized on MSNBC 
NBC and CNN. And so you've got this new push to have. We need, you know, after January 6th, we need a new domestic terror law. We need a 9-11 commission. We need a troop deployment indefinitely in the nation's capital. And since everybody's been trained, I shouldn't say everybody, but sort of like mainline liberals have been trained to inherently trust what these national security state people are saying, they just go along with their very little pushback. Yeah. Well, first of all, let me just say I'm a little bit offended that you would even consider the possibility that I hadn't heard Hillary Clinton's podcast. <laughs> I'm an <laughs> I want to give a shout out to it for people who don't subscribe. It's a really like funny, uh, just like it's a wild ride of all kinds of like just inventive thinking. I mean, Hillary is a great podcast host, and I really encourage all of you to subscribe <laughs> if you haven't already. Um you know, like what you said, Crystal, like we've talked about before, of course, like I, I fully on board with everything you said. And I think that like one of the things that, um, well, first of all, just like on the question of like blaming Russia, if you listen to the Clinton campaign statements that were made in the immediate aftermath of the election, they really weren't blaming Russia primarily. They, the two culprits they were blaming most were WikiLeaks but especially Jim Comey. It was re they re the intention was to heap all the blame onto Comey. And like Nate Silver had said in the wake of the 2016 election that he believes that Comey reopening that investigation shortly before the election was the most significant event in Hillary's loss and used a statistical analysis to demonstrate that that's what caused a clearly identifiable shift of two or three percentage points because it played into all the voters' worst fears about Hillary being corrupt. So they were all ready to blame Comey and then WikiLeaks, but then once everybody decided to blame Russia, they grabbed onto that because as you said, their real goal, it's amazing, like in Democratic Party politics, if a Democrat loses, they blame everybody except for the candidate in the campaign whose responsibility it is to win. No one else has the responsibility to make Hillary win except Hillary and the people she pays on her campaign to help her win. And those are the last people they blame, right? Like they blamed WikiLeaks and Comey and Maggie Haberman and me. Bernie and Sanders, everybody. The Intercept. Bernie yes. Sanders, for sure. <laughs> everybody, yeah. Everybody else but themselves. But I think the much more serious and important you know, danger is the one that you identified. And it's the reason why I like situated myself where I did for the four years of the Trump presidency, which was that one of the things that you could really see happening was there were huge numbers of people who were paying attention, close attention to politics for the first time because of the of fear of Trump, or maybe because Trump was just uniquely entertaining as well, right? There's no doubt that millions and millions of people who never watched cable, who didn't consume political news were doing so for the first time because of Trump. That's why ratings exploded. That's why, you know, subscriptions went up. That's why social media became such a hotbed of excitement and intensity. It was all because of fear or of or interest in Trump. And so there were huge numbers of people whose ideas about politics were being formed for the first time starting in 2015 or 2016 who never thought before about what David Frum and John Bolton and, you know, Nicole Wallace and all of those scumbags of the Bush-Cheney era did, like the unique and profound moral evils that they ushered in with the help of the Democratic Party. Nor were there, did they think about the decades of evil that the CIA perpetuated and continues to perpetuate under people like John Brennan and James Clapper and Michael Hayden. Um, and so you could see that they, like it wasn't just that these individuals were being let off the hook and their careers were being rehabilitated. 
it was much more pernicious than that. It was that their political values were being reshaped to think about politics in terms of national loyalty. Everybody got accused of being a traitor. Everybody got accused of being a Kremlin agent. Everybody was, you know, you, you if, if you spoke ill of the military, you were dishonoring the troops. If you criticized the CIA, you were like impugning the integrity of the brave men and women who keep the country safe. If you like talk badly about Robert Mueller, it was against the FBI. And so all of these institutions that the left had made progress in making people distrust over the course of decades had been almost entirely undone. And liberal politics was remade into this authoritarian movement taught to venerate the centers of power on the grounds that they opposed Trump because that was the only issue that mattered was Trump. Are you against Trump or are you for Trump? That was the only thing that shaped their political identity. And so because the CIA was Trump's enemy, because Bill Kristol was the Trump's enemy and neocons, because Wall Street and Silicon Valley were, because the corporate press was, liberal politics got rebuilt to worship the corporate media, to worship the security state, to worship centers of financial power, and to worship Bush, Cheney operatives, and neocons. And that continues to shape liberal politics as it now controls the levels of power in government. And that was what I was opposed to. It was obviously never sympathy for Trump's political agenda. Although in some cases I did appreciate the way that he was overturning taboos and asking questions that just out of kind of a desire to destroy that should be asked but had never been. But obviously it was never sympathy for the political agenda. It was I of stopping him. You froze there for a second, Glenn. Um, but to your point, yeah, it was this mindset of like, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so you see Democrats getting in bed with, no pun intended, the Lincoln Project. And then <laughs> when you look at what the Lincoln Project, in a, in a variety of ways, what they were up to was... Uh, incredibly problematic and yeah that's that's a core of something that um you know i think should be objected to by everybody um i want to ask you about talk to me about homelessness and what you're doing on that front because i find it fascinating and then also tell me about animal rights which is an issue that you care deeply about and what is it about these two particular issues that were so important to you that you took the initiative to actually do something yourself and, and launch your own initiative. Yeah, well, I mean, animals have always been a, a really important part of my life. Um, you know, like during that difficult time I was describing earlier, like the beginning of, the, of our discussion, you know, being gay, feeling like ostracized, kind of lost, confused about why society had like cast me out before I even had a chance to understand what was going on or who I was. I would like spend a lot of time with like, there were a bunch of dogs in the neighborhood who like were allowed out, who like would walk around in the street. I would like always invite them in. I would hang out with dogs. I just really got to love dogs like from childhood. And it was always like my dream to like one day, like live on a farm and have like thousands of dogs and other mm -hmm. animals, but especially dogs. Like I was really focused on dogs. So it was kind of just like a childhood dream. And then when I moved to Brazil in 2005 with a dog that um, I had adopted when I was in Manhattan, David and I, my husband, just started like 
finding dogs that we would like pick up off the street. And it was never our intention to make it like some vocation. It was just, oh, this is going to be our last one, our third. And then like two years later, like, oh, this is our six. This is re- we're really at the limit now. <laughs> and then, you know, like a few years later, it was like, okay, look, 17 is really like, <laughs> over. Like, and so, you know, it got to the point where like rescuing dogs became something that we just did. And it was like, something that really touched me emotionally. It was incredibly gratifying. Um, we started, you know, not just t- taking them in, but like finding homes for them, working with animal networks. I don't know, we fostered probably hundreds of dogs over the years um, that it didn't end up staying with us, but that we ended up, you know, finding homes for. And then like at some point it kind of morphed into this like interest I had where, you know, there's a big homeless population in Rio de Janeiro. It's a city where there's huge wealth and income inequality and lots of homelessness. And I noticed, you know, I've always lived in the city, so I've seen homelessness in Washington, D.C., in New York City. But in Rio, I noticed that, like, the homeless population disproportionately lives with dogs. Hmm. And, like, at first when I started interacting with it, I was kind of cynical and jaded about it. I thought, like, oh, they just have dogs because it's a way that they get dog lovers to give them money. But I would, like, spy on them. I would, like, pass them by after I gave them money, and then I would, like, watch them when they thought nobody was watching. And what I saw was exactly the opposite. They would be like even more affectionate, even like more loving with their dogs. Like when nobody was there, they were like hugging them and kissing them and laughing with them. And so I just started getting to know like homeless people who lived on the street with their animals and discovered that like the bond between a homeless person and a homeless dog is so much deeper and more profound than if you're somebody who has like a job and a family and kids and a wife and a dog, right? Like you love Mm -hmm. your dog, but you have all these other things that you also have in your life. So like the relationship is important and deep, but it's not the only thing you have, which is true for homeless people. It's the only thing they have. And that dog, the person is the only thing that dog has as well. So I would like offer them to buy them leashes and they'd be like, oh, I don't need a leash. My dog goes wherever I go. And I just started, and then there's like a whole kind of academic scholarship around it that like sociologists have done studying this bond and the uniqueness of it. And then like in 2016, we met this, black trans woman who lived near our house, like in the forest, who I used to always see walking with a bunch of dogs. So one day I I just stopped um, and was like, what is going on here? And she invited me in and like showed me they were taking care of like 38 dogs. She was like the matriarch of this like makeshift family. Sometimes they didn't even have food, but those dogs were like better cared for and better fed than my own dogs. And I was like, you know, we did a film about her that Laura Poitras produced that was beautiful. Um, and then we decided like, let's take this energy and try and like capture it and spread it. Um, so we created a shelter, a dog shelter, but the uniqueness of it is that it only employs homeless people who were living on the streets with their animals. So they were already taking care of animals as a labor of love, but now they work at the shelter. And so we simultaneously work with abandoned animals, but also these previously homeless people. We have social workers who like teach them how to manage income, open a bank account, get ID, rent an apartment, like with the idea of getting them to exit the street. So it's really designed to like work with both populations at the same time, but also kind of tap into and spread this connection that they've developed that I really don't think exists exists anywhere else. That is incredibly beautiful. I mean, as you're talking, Glenn, and we're watching behind you in the background, like your children and your dogs and everybody running around and riding bicycles. And you said that your dream was to have a farm 
and have a bunch of dogs. And that's exactly what is like playing out behind you in the background. Do people ask you yeah. for advice a lot? And also you have an, you know, a job and a profession that you really care about that makes a huge difference in the world that you clearly have a lot of passion for. Um, you know, what do you, when, when young people ask you for advice about just sort of charting their life and how to find their place in the world, what are some of the things that you tell them or that you would tell them? Yeah, you know, I get asked that a lot. Like, if I go to speak to colleges or, you know, um, people think about going to law or journalism. And I think the most important thing by far is exactly what you just said, which is like, I believe that, like, when we're young, we all have passion about something or many things. And society is structured in a way to kind of like gradually suffocate it and just kind of like extinguish it so that you become focused only on your utility to the society because passion isn't very useful. It can be actually kind of disruptive. Mm. And passion is so important, right? Like it's what animates us and gives us purpose. It's like what makes us get up in the morning, not with a sense of obligation, but with a sense of excitement. And I know for a fact, because I went to law school that all people who go to law school or most people who go to law school, like go there with a passion about what they can do with law. Like they're not thinking, oh, I want to like spend the next 40 years representing investment banks and insurance companies, right? Mm -hmm. like there's something that excites them about the law that makes them go do that. Definitely so people who go into journalism. Who? Mayor. I said, except Mayor Pete, he actually couldn't wait to do that. <laughs> <laughs> right. But he's like, he's not, he, we're talking about humans, like not. Right. right. <laughs> um, I want to be very clear about that. Thank you for that opportunity to clarify. So, you know, I just tell people like, sometimes you're going to have to make compromises, right? Like I got out of law school with crushing student debt because I paid for law school with nothing but loans. And so I couldn't go do the things I wanted to do. I had to go whore myself out to like a Wall Street law firm. So I made a sacrifice for 18 months um, and it opened up doors and it taught me things and it enabled me to do other things. So you might make sacrifices along the way that where you're not like on the path that you think you should be on. But as long as you like really viciously safeguard that original passion or set of passions that you had that animated you in, in the first place, eventually you're going to not only find what it is that you want to do, but you're going to find, you're going to do it in a way that fulfills a broader purpose than just earning a paycheck or keeping a job. Um, like just don't let the society break you in the way that it's structured to do. So my final question for you, Glenn, and it's a little bit of a two-part question, so I'm cheating. It's kind of two-in-one. But do you think those passions that you just explained, do you think that that's more innate and from our nature, or do you think it's from our environment and nurture? And then the follow-up to that is, are you a long-term optimist or pessimist? Mm. So I think you know human beings are inherently passionate, that we have these passions ingrained within us. It may be that like certain experiences help define what that passion is, help it find expression, how it may be fulfilled. But I absolutely think that we're inherently uh, passionate beings, which is why societal institutions are structured to kind of extinguish it um, and to render us more conformist and homogenized. And yeah, as for being an optimist, like I, I am an optimist. I think that anybody who chooses to do what the three of us have chosen to do, what everyone listening has chosen to do, you know, you wake up, there's like an infinite number of choices that you can engage with and focus on. You can watch sports and you can 
be entertained and you can, um, you know, watch porn and you can like disconnect from the matrix and go out into nature. There's an endless number of things you can do. If you choose to pay attention to politics and cultural debates, it's because you believe there's an opportunity to make things better. If you didn't believe that you would just, there's no way you would ever choose to do this. Um, and yeah, I believe in the capacity of human reason. I believe in the ability to persuade people. I believe in the ability to tap into people's better spirits, to like stimulate their empathy, to stimulate, stimulate their compa compassion, their desire to connect like the social animal in us, um, in a way that can make society better. So yeah, I always, uh, feel like there's, um, always an opportunity to, to use our, our skills to, to improve things, no matter how grim they might seem. Glenn, thank you so much. It's so great getting to chat with you. We really appreciate tell, it. Tell everybody where they could find you. Tell them about your Substack and, and your Twitter. So I'm the host of a YouTube show called Secular Talk. <laughs> um, you can find I got Russiagate right, of course. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm at Substack. It's just greenwall.substack.com. Um, publishing maybe like twice a, a week or so. Obviously, I'm on Twitter like every other mentally unwell person. Um, <laughs> and I can frequently be found on the place where my heart truly lies, which is on the show called Rising with Crystal Ball and, and Sagar and Jetty. I'm going to only show Sagar that portion of this interview, Glenn. <laughs> okay. All right. Glenn, thanks Great so much, man. You're awesome. You. Enjoyed it. So, Glenn Greenwald, there he is. Um, you know, he's really one of the rare cases of somebody who's perpetually interesting to me. Mm. Um, I'm always interested in whatever he's writing about, whatever he's tweeting about. Even when I don't agree with him, I enjoy reading his thoughts because um, he just strikes me as really thoughtful and really genuine and he cares about this stuff. And there's actually nothing, I secretly love it when he gets in these like bomb throwing wars with people on Twitter. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, he'll get in these giant fights with whoever, some random and person from Media Matters or the New York Times. So relentlessly hard. He still fights <laughs> like me when I was 14 and in a YouTube comment section on 9-11 conspiracies. <laughs> like, he's all in. And, and I love that about him. He strikes me as just really genuine. That The thing that... So you always admire in people qualities that you don't think you yourself have. And that's one of the qualities that I really admire about him because I'm a very anti-confrontational person. Mm. Like, I don't want the fight. I don't want the argument. I don't want the debate. I just want everybody to be nice and everybody to like me and them to be happy and to be happy with me and whatever I said. Like, I'm actually very poorly suited for this line of work, to be honest with you, because that is my natural inclination. And his natural inclination and also what he's kind of cultivated is to be in the polar opposite direction. And it's funny because, you know, I have three kids and they're all very, very different. And some of them have this quality as well, where it's like they just naturally love the debate, naturally love the fight. They're spoiling for it. They like their faces light up. And he has that same kind of quality. I also thought it was really interesting because this isn't something a reality that i've ever lived with talking about the stress of feeling yourself and your husband and your children in like imminent physical danger and how he learned to cope with that i thought was extraordinarily interesting yeah i mean as an outsider my thoughts on that are like you have no choice but to block it out you know what I mean? Because yeah. if you engage in it, you can go down this 
black hole abyss vortex where you're just like perpetually miserable and never happy. And so it's almost like you have to choose to live in a world where you say it's not a thing. And, you know, in a sense, you're lying to yourself. But I think people do this in a variety of different ways in less on less severe topics. So like the way I try to like almost give myself a little protective cocoon where I don't I'm not engaging all the time mm-hmm. with everybody where mm-hmm. I would go absolutely insane. Yeah. You know what I mean? That It's a similar mindset. It's like I know that if I go to my Twitter feed right now and read the mentions that within 10 tweets I'm going to see something that's really going to piss me off and ruin my day. Yeah, and that so you're like, going to have to respond to and then that takes up like an hour of your life. So like I'm choosing, mm-hmm. I'm choosing to not acknowledge it or, or and just pretend it's not real. Like, okay, it's just not there. If I, It's out of sight, out of mind. If I don't see it, it's not real, you know? And I feel like that's the only thing that one can do when you're at a certain point because he really is in a position where it's, like, uniquely dangerous. Like, very few people are reporting on the wrongdoings of, like, powerful world governments on a regular basis, and that's Glenn Greenwald. Right. Well, not only just any world government, but the Bolsonaro government, which is, like, murdering thugs. Yeah. And he has – Bolsonaro has quotes like – I am a fascist. <laughs> like, I remember when I covered when he first got elected, there was a list of all of his quotes. They were like that. It was like, I'm a fascist. I believe in, like, authoritarianism. I was reading them like, oh, my God. Yeah. The guy I Glenn's mean, poking him with a stick. Yeah, it's right. And and in the country, and look, no matter how much security you have or how many precautions you take, you can never be fully invulnerable. And as he said, he was the top target in the country or one of the top targets in the country of that administration and you know the only way you can deal with that is just basically say look I'm going to take the precautions I can I'm going to do what I can and then I'm just going to block it out because you just have to know what you can't control so I thought that was really interesting um you had told me before though and I want you to share the way that you first met Glenn yeah I was actually going to bring this up to him but it would have been you know it would have been a sidetrack thing and we probably would have ended up talking about it for 20 minutes but I was going to ask him if he remembers the first time him and I met um because the the way him and I met is very like it's such an online story you know like two maladjusted semi-adults who like <laughs> connect online that's what it was I mean so I had done this segment this is a this is a long time ago I want to say this is like 2014 so if secular talk had taken off it was still like in the beginning phases of taking off you know what I mean so it's not prominent enough where anybody should give a shit yet mm. I think it was like 2014 ish and I did a segment where I basically said, let's propose a truce between the new atheists and progressives. And because new atheists were going hard on Islam, because at the time there were a lot of like Al Qaeda terror attacks. And so the big topic was like, you know, is religion inherently dangerous? Is Islam worse than Christianity? And this was the online banter at the time. Mm. And Glenn Greenwald was very critical of Sam Harris because Sam Harris in a variety of different ways and on a variety of different outlets, basically said, like, Islam is worse, it's the mother load of bad ideas, it's inherently violent, and this is what I believe on it. And then Greenwald would criticize that and say, listen, one of the reasons why we're having so many attacks also has to do with U.S. foreign policy, and we're having this backlash effect, and so that needs to be taken into account. And anyway, so I hopped in and I did a segment where I said, hey, I think Sam Harris is right on points X, Y, and Z, and I think, you know, Uh, Glenn Greenwald is right on points A, B, and C. Let's, like, have a truce and let's, you know, stop sniping at each other 24-7. And you got to remember, this is, I'm coming from the world of having been inspired by both Richard Dawkins and Noam Chomsky. So it felt almost like a personal Mm. fight where, like, two parts of my own identity are, like, warring, Mm. right? Interesting. So I ended up 
I spoke to Glenn Greenwald, or actually he may have even reached out to me. I don't remember who reached out to who, but he was like, yeah, I'll come on, let's talk about it. And remember, this is one, I don't even know how many subs I had at the time, but it wasn't that many. Right. And um, he was like, yeah, let's talk about and it. And so, Glenn's already, you know, journalistic giant, et cetera. Yeah, huge following. Already, fucking, yeah. I think you won the Pulitzer already. Yeah. He's going to go talk to, you know, what he, he used some very him, phrase though. describing me to you, like some fresh face punk kid or some shit. He called me something like that. Yeah, like some punk kid in, yeah. in your garage or something yeah. like that. <laughs> Might have called me like baby face or some shit. I don't know. It was, it was very uh, Glenn Greenwald. But anyway, so in my talk with Glenn, it lasted maybe 40 minutes to an hour. And I really got the sense that he was incredibly thorough and thoughtful. And he really thought about every angle of this. And whatever question I a asked him, he had a good answer. Like, he, agree or disagree with the answer. He clearly thought about it all. Mm. And he was very, very in the weeds, in the details, and I appreciated that. And so I enjoyed the conversation. Now, Sam Harris, on the other hand, I got the sense, and I spoke to him for an even longer period of time. I think it was over a two-hour conversation. Wow. And it was just like, I couldn't keep him on track. It was like, the whole time, it was just like relentless, I'm going to attack Glenn Greenwald, I'm going to attack Reza Aslan, I'm going to attack... It was just... And listen, he maybe some of his criticisms of those people are fair. I'll, I'll leave that to you. But... Certainly the way he communicated in the conversation with me was nowhere near as thorough, thoughtful, detailed, intelligent as the way Glenn Greenwald. And on the merits of the policy of the of the issue itself versus like character. On the effects, merits of right? the issue, yes. I was like, you're not saying anything. Whereas with Glenn, agree or disagree with what he's saying, it was on the topic. You yeah. know what I mean? So, you know, that was my first that's how I met him. And then actually ever since then, we've been in contact to one extent or another. Um because, yeah, he, I just think he's a really fascinating and interesting guy. And I actually, there, there are times where I'm like, hmm, I wonder what Glenn thinks about this. And that's not something that happens often with me. I'm mm. stubborn enough and in love with my own opinions enough where I'm like, I don't give a fuck what anybody thinks. But with Glenn, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah what does he think? Yeah, and no, I'll take into account his view because I know he's thought it through really thoroughly. Um, I have a Glenn Greenwald story, too, but I don't think I don't even think I've talked to him about it recently. But, you know, when I was at MSNBC, I was much more in the just like rah, rah, Democrat, the Democrats yeah. are the good guys and the Republicans are the bad guys. That was me always, early secular talk, too, by the way. Right. So and you know. always trying to yeah. see things like through the best lens mm -hmm, or whatever. Mm -hmm. So year, a few years after I left, Glenn pulled up some terrible take I had about like Obama and drones <laughs> or something and just randomly tweets it out. I was like, look at what MSNBC people say. I'm like, where did this come from? But and so, you know, suddenly my day is blown up with like people attacking me based on this thing that I said years ago, which was a terrible take. And crystal sensitive, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, that probably that affected you for a week. I bet. Uh, well, no, because I just completely capitulated. I was like, yeah, you're right. That was a totally oh, okay. bad take. Capitulate. And that just ended all of it. But that was my that was kind of when I was also. I left MSNBC, but I hadn't gone to the Hill yet. I was sort of in an interim. I wasn't even really working or like on Twitter and all of a sudden everything like blowed up, blew up one day. But, um, you know, that's who who he is, is just he has these not that he hasn't evolved over time, as we talked mm -hmm. about with him. I mean, he actually had a similar trajectory just earlier on of being like, holy right. shit, the New York Times and Atlantic are not the end all be all yeah. of truth. And actually, I've been fed this propaganda that has really shaped my views in an incorrect way. But he has a set of principles that he just really, really sticks to in a way that's actually extraordinarily rare and is actually harder to do than you think it is because it's very easy. Look, we're all fallible. We're humans. We have people we like. We have people we don't like, people we trust, people we don't trust. And all of those sort of ambient biases 
it's easy to persuade yourself that, oh, well, in this situation, it's different. So my principle yeah. doesn't really apply. And he is so good at avoiding that sort of, you know, bias. And no matter whether it's somebody he likes, somebody he doesn't like, someone who's been an ally before, someone who's been on a different page with whatever, the principle is the thing. He's actively hostile to groupthink. He's actively hostile to groupthink, more so than I think anybody I've ever met. And he actually was, around that one point, he was a little bit sensitive because he wanted to make clear, like, no, 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 I'm not just a pure contrarian. Which I think matters because you yeah. see people who are pure contrarian. I'm not going to name them, but I have somebody just, in mind right now. It's just as yeah. predictable as oh my if God, you it's are, so boring. If you always go along with the conventional wisdom, yeah. that's extremely boring. But if you also always go against the conventional wisdom, it's also very boring because you're. And what's it's more annoying is those people. Those people don't think they're boring and predictable, but they right. are. So they're even worse. <laughs> right. Like the pure contrarian. Like wherever everybody else is, I'm going to be over here, no matter what it is. Yeah, yeah. Also, not a good place to be. Yeah, and, um, you know, I wanted to bring this up, but I didn't, but I wanted to, but it would have been, I guarantee you, it would have been a 20-minute debate if I brought it up, but there's one area where Glenn and I could not disagree more, and it's the issue of money and politics. He's so big on the, you know, the old-school ACLU view of freedom of speech in the First Amendment that he genuinely believes that the First Amendment means like unlimited money in politics mm. and that that's how the system should work so he would argue that like citizens united and mccutcheon and all these cases honestly the cases going back to the late 1970s until today there's been a number of them that all of them were decided correctly when the courts basically said like yeah money is speech and i wanted to talk to him about that because i don't i mean i if there are other implications to the idea of money being speech like if money is just speech then why can't you do murder for hire you know what i mean like that's if you're paying for somebody to go murder somebody, you could say, I wasn't actually paying for somebody to go murder somebody. I was just saying with my speech that I think murdering this person would be okay, hmm. which would be legal, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, my issue is always like, you know, it's not a fair playing field if the people who have billions are able to have so much more speech and so much more reach than anyone else. But yeah, and I don't want to I don't want to dump on his view because right. he's not here. Well, I was going to but... say, I like that you bring it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, but I, the actual point I was going to make, even though, yes, I am sort of dunking on it, um, is he sincerely believes it. He's one of the he's one of the few people when yeah. talking about the issue of money in politics. Where it's where, not a cynical take because yeah, he's like, like lining his pockets with oil money or right, whatever. Yeah, like some yeah. corporate Democrat will make that argument. But the only reason they're making that argument is because they're taking money from health insurance companies and Wall Street and, and Big Pharma and whatever. He makes that argument because he actually thinks on the merits – that that's true. Yeah. You know, and there's a, there's a difference. There's a categorical difference there. I love the story about his grandfather and the, like, <laughs> accusing everybody on the little local city council of corruption. And he's all he's his it's grandfather. I don't totally care what he says. Totally. He's his grandfather for sure. Um, but, yeah, fascinating conversation. For sure. Um, thank you guys for hanging out with us this week. Uh, we don't know who we have on next week yet, do we? I don't know. Yes, I we're think gonna so. surprise Some you. Scheduling. I'm gonna rephrase that. We with. have an amazing guest plan. <laughs> we just want to make it a surprise for you next week. So um, enjoy the week, guys. We'll see you soon. Bye.